Hey there. Welcome to More Than a Crush, a podcast about love. Each week, we pick a theme and share a story about one of the many facets of love. We are your hosts. I'm Marion Bolognese, an artist and designer recording from New York. And I'm Kim Berry, a therapist broadcasting from New Jersey. All it's right. It's great. It's great. It's fantastic. It is good, I think. All right. I was just going to say, we don't, we don't actually have an official name for today's episode, do we? I think that we need to come up with one right now. Mm, pressure. Um, in the heat of the night. Sure. <laughs> I don't know. No, 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 I'm singing Patty Smith. How about, how about we just call it his throbbing member? Or, <laughs> um, I don't think that will be good for, um, the, the episode list. Fabio? Did Fabio actually get his start as a romance novel cover model? Is that how he started? I, I believe so. Okay. I'm curious what his career looked like beforehand. Yeah, seriously. Oh my gosh. Do you remember when we, everyone was watching I know. Average Joe? Okay, I do, when, when Tony was on it. Isn't it romantic? I think that should be our title for today. Perfect. Isn't it romantic? It. Okay, sorry, please. Yes, when everybody was watching Average Joe because Tony was on it, yes. And I was I was really committed to that reality dating show. And then it came all the way down to, like, the two guys, and she picks the one, and then she has this, like, big, deep, dark secret. Do you remember this? That she has Vaguely. to reveal. Well, I, be- I believe, if memory serves me correctly, the deep, dark secret, her skeleton in the closet... She dated it, Fabio. Yes, it was that. that and was... he couldn't handle it. Not not Tony, but the guy that she had chosen. And he leaves her. He leaves her because she dated Fabio. That's right. But wasn't Which it... Was weird, like, that's your deal breaker? Didn't they also throw in, like, a spin where all of a sudden the average Joes were overtaken by a bunch of, like, quote-unquote hot guys? Yes kind of fucked up right it is i mean the whole show was messed up also tony you're not average you're a great guy he's above average yeah anyway so kim would you like to introduce our theme today i would love to it's isn't it romantic (laughs) thank you you. (laughs) (laughs) i wasn't sure if you remembered since we just came up with it (laughs) tonight's theme today's theme this episode's theme is are you all ready for this? Isn't it romantic? <laughs> so romantic. Isn't it? It is. Is it? Or isn't it? I don't know. I don't is know. Is it romantic? <laughs> that is a really different tone, right? Yeah. Wait. Is this romance? Is, is it this romantic? Ro- is it romantical? So this week we had the pleasure of interviewing Chloe Lease. Very exciting. Our very first interview. Super exciting. And it was great. We were, I'm not going to lie, I was pretty nervous. But it was easy, I thought. We got along well. She's fantastic to talk to. Yeah. And it's really exciting because she has her new book out, Always Only You. It was only just this week, right, that it was released? Yes, earlier this week it was released. But you, dear listener, it'll be a little more than a week when when you catch up with us in real time. But don't you worry. It's worth the wait. Yes, it is. And it was very funny. While we were talking with Chloe, I recalled the first romance novel that I had ever read. 
which may be the only romance novel that I've ever read. No, that can't be true because I like it or not, everybody. I read the whole Twilight series, which I believe would qualify as romance. I thought you were going to say Fifty Shades of Grey there. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't read Fifty Shades of Grey. Did you read it? No. (laughs) I did listen to it on the recommendation of a friend who will remain nameless, but you know who you are. Um, <laughs> I'm a narration. <laughs> um, who was like, yeah, no, totally. You can, you should listen to it on audiobook. And I was like, all right. And where do I listen to audiobooks uh, at work? Let me tell you, Fifty Shades of Grey, inappropriate while you are working in the office. <laughs> I mean, maybe not for everybody. For me, I... I don't want to be blushing that hard. While a little I'm hot and steamy? Yeah. Well, I'm sitting in an office with a bunch of people. I was like, oh, wow. I thought it was more of, because of its popularity, I kind of imagined that it was going to be more like a Twilight, you know, mm-hmm. that it was going to be a little, what did Chloe say? What was the term she used? Remember she used like a specific oh. term? Open door. Open door. I think she called it open door. Yeah. It's very outwardly sexual, I thought. I mean, there were, it was detailed. Versus closed door, which maybe Twilight would be considered closed door. I don't really know. I learned yes. a lot and immediately I, forgot. <laughs> she's, well, she's clearly knows her genre without yeah. a doubt. And she, which, which I love that not only, you know, does she know her genre? She's very accomplished. This is like the second in the series. She's had other books that she's written. And she, you know, she's referencing all these other books. Like, oh, what about this one? What about that one? And she left us with a lot to read. Yes, for sure. I have a list right here. Emma Scott, Rush, The Roommate. Oh, that was the one. Yes, I remember that one. The Hating Game. Is that Chloe's book? I don't know. Is that the series? That was someone else, right? She was was saying that that was like a one-person perspective that she doesn't usually enjoy. However, that version was really enjoyable. So so I recall this book, Gondar, by Nicholas Lard. Lord, Lard. I was going to read an excerpt from it, but you know what? I I don't know. I don't recall anything. I don't even know if this even is a romance novel, to be honest with you. I just think it had like a sex scene and me at 13 was like, ah! and decided that it was a romance novel. Um, I can definitely, I see the cover? Yes, you can. It's right here. Oh, that's interesting. I would not necessarily say... Uh, that would be a romance. Yeah, I don't think novel. it is. I, I Nicholas Luard. I just Lu- think it has graphic sex scenes, and so I, in my youth, decided that it was a romance novel. It sounds interesting. I don't really remember very much of it. I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to read it tonight. I'm not sure about the direction of this novel well, and whether I want to read it right now. I, I Googled it, and... It says it's exotic. <laughs> yeah, it's exotic. And fantastic. Yes, yes. Uh, but the genre is fiction, not romance. Yes, it has a, sh- a cheetah on the front of it. A, gr- a snarling cheetah. A growling cheetah. It's, a roaring it's just cheetah. Roaring. Or it leopard. It says it's uh, lushly told. Oh, it does say, it does say, set in Africa talks of, of violence, spectacle. A land of sensuality and violence. A people of courage and daring. A kingdom called... Gondar. Oh, here's a good picture. Oh, oh, look at this guy. Oh, Nicholas Luard, writer and, and politician. politician. Yes. I defy any reader to skip a single page. Gary Jennings, look. author of Aztec. I know, I saw that picture today. <laughs> so I'm not going to 
read Gondar um, after all. But I had a couple questions for you, Kim. Oh, boy. I wanted to know, Whew. who do you think is the um, best-selling author alive right now? Mm. Oh, I don't know. Oh, I'm going to say, oh, geez. What are those guys who, like, Michael Balducci or Michael Crichton, they all have Michael names. It's like some dude that... Well, you can just stop right there because it's a woman. Okay. Ooh. The best-selling author alive is a woman, and her name. She's also the the fourth best-selling fiction author of all time. And for the record, best-selling authors of all time, there are other women as well. So fantastic, women! You can do it. You can. But anyway, the best-selling author alive at this moment in time is Danielle Steele, and she is also <gasps> the fourth. Yes. The fourth, <laughs> the fourth best-selling fiction author of all time, with over 800 million copies sold. <gasps> Go, Danielle. Yeah, seriously. And how many books do you think she's written, Kim? Oh, hmm. Hundreds? That's that correct. A, that a... 179 books. She's in wow. her 70s now. And I was just going to say, how old is she? Yeah, I, I believe her first book came out in her 20s. So she's written 179 books, and she typically has has five or so stories going on at a time. She's fascinating. Her genre is romance. Pretty interesting, right? We were talking about how, even though it's, you know, incredibly lucrative. People love love. And People they love want love, something right. to be able to read that's engaging, perhaps even fantasy, you know. Perhaps. That's not the kind of romance they're getting on their regular. Yeah. Um, I've actually never read a Daniel Steele book, so I'm, I, 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 I'm making broad sweeping generalizations about her novel and people that read them well the bookshelf at the cabin in the back where you yourself have several times picked up an interesting book called little girl lost to read (laughs) while you're at the cabin no no no. i brought that book and left it there (laughs) okay that's not how i remember it but fine i thought you found it maybe i didn't you know it's actually probably better if I just admit that, no, I, I only read it while I'm at the cabin. I never... I'm really intrigued by um, Drew Barrymore. Next to Gondar, on occasion, is a Danielle Steele novel. Mm-hmm. I've never read a whole one, but I have picked one up a couple times. And I've looked her up before. To admit, I'm a little bit more interested in her than I am in her books right now. I'll but I might change her. my mind. Who knows? Um, so she's famous for being fairly consistent um, in her storytelling in that she has a formula involving rich families that face crisis hmm. and are threatened by dark elements such as prison, fraud, blackmail. So she was born into a wealthy family and from an early age she was participated in her parents' social lives and she attended their dinner parties and sort of mingled with these wealthy socialites. But... Um, her parents divorced pretty early when she was eight years old. From that point on, she lived primarily with her father. Hmm. She spent a lot of time in France and also in New York. At some point, she decided that she wanted to become a nun, but she didn't hold on to that for very long. And her life went in a very different direction, I would say. I say that seems very different. Yes. It's more of like a zig from a zag. Yeah. Being a nun to hot and steamy wordsmith. Yeah. She studied literature, design, and fashion design, first at Parsons and then at NYU. And her first... She's a smart cookie. She, I mean, you have to be to be able to juggle all that she juggles and, you know, have all this stuff going on. 
Her first novel was, was released in 1972. It was called Going Home. She often writes herself, is my understanding is that she writes herself as the heroine in her novels or that the, the heroine resembles her or follows a theme that exists in her life. Hmm. She's been married five times. Okay. Uh, her first marriage was to a French-American banker. And while well, she married him while she was 18 years old. Wow. Yeah, and but it didn't last for very long. While still married to Lazard, Steele met Danny Zugler. Zugelder. 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 Danny Zugelder. No, not not no Danny Zugo here. It wasn't Summer Levin. <laughs> Danny Zugelder. While she was interviewing an inmate in a prison in California where Zugelder was also incarcerated. When he was paroled in 1973, he moved in with Steele. But he quickly returned to prison, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah. And for robbery and rape charges. Oh, no. Yeah. No, thank you. Uh, Danielle, you could do better. Um, after re- three more husbands to go. Yeah. But she even after that, even after the robbery and rape charges, which I don't know what happened if they were dropped or what, she married Zugelder while he was actually in prison in the prison canteen. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but they were divorced in 1978. They still weren't married for three years. Uh, during that relationship, she wrote Passion's Promise and Now and Forever, which were the two novels that launched her career. Oh. Yes. So, I mean, one door closes. Can we've spoken about this? Another, Another one opens. Yeah, window flies right open. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the prison cell closes and, you know, I don't know where to take that one. I give up. Me neither. I'm yeah. a little bit of a loss. Sorry. Yeah, no. <laughs> Forget it. I would have loved to help you out there. But... Yeah, no. Prison door slams shut and page turns. Anyway, um, next novel. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, so Steele married her, her third husband, William George Toth, the day after her divorce from Zugelder was finalized. So she's going, she's going pretty fast here, but she, you know. She rebounds quickly. Yeah. She's not going to hang out down and out. She lands on her feet. Her- she does. She's not crying herself every night into a pillow. No, She's definitely not. Out there definitely not. And she meeting another eligible bachelor. That's right. She was already eight months pregnant <laughs> with, with, with whose child? With Toth's baby when she okay. married him the day after divorcing Zugelder. Again, multitasking. Uh, this this marriage only lasted for three years, but during this marriage, she released the promise. Which was wildly successful. And this really catapulted her into, you know, sort of celebrity. I mean, we, I, Daniel Steele's a household name, right? I mean, oh, everybody yes. knows who she is. And I can picture her immediately. I don't know if you can. I have an idea of what she looks like in my head, but I don't know if that's just self-created or if I've seen it on the back, like, jacket of, mm. a, of a novel. What do you imagine? I'm imagining um, like a white woman with longish brown hair and it's feathered. Um, maybe she, she's wearing those like kind of like large oversized glasses. She has red hair. See, oh, okay. Or like a strawberry blonde oh, hair. About, yes. I, I see it now. Yes. 
I can like picture her immediately. Um, I think that her third husband, William Toth, couldn't handle her success because, and that was the the cause of their divorce after three years. Um, but she was basically exploding at this point. She had been on the New York Times bestseller list for 381 consecutive weeks. How many again? Say that again. 381 consecutive weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Hot damn. That's also a record. This lady just shatters records. Also, I just Googled her and check out. She's a hot little ticket. Yeah, she's a beautiful woman. Yeah. I mean, would you say she has brown hair? I think she has strawberry blonde hair, right? Yeah. It's strawberry blonde. Yeah. Yeah. Redheads tend to age so fantastic. Good job, you. Ginger. Good now job. I'm just getting lost. Continue, please. <laughs> <laughs> so she's on the bestseller list for like years and years and years. Yes, for years. <laughs> Off being successful. Blah. She marries again <laughs> to a vintner, John Traina, and they have five children together. Oh, wow. Yes. And so so this is where she really shows us what she's made of because this woman spends as much time as she possibly can. All day long she spends with her children and she writes by night. Five books at a time by night. Wow. Yes. So she has six children at this point. Yes. Yes, that's right. Yep. Amazing. Amazing. I'm impressed. Yes. Trina adopted her first son, Nicholas, and... Yeah, so she's just like continuing to bite, uh, to book, to bite, to book, to write books um, during this <laughs> to time. Bite the book. <laughs> to bite the book. <laughs> uh, apparently, it takes two and a half years for her to complete a book, and she has a system, like a formula here as well. But she starts by taking notes and really developing the characters through these sets of notes. And then as she learns and understands who the characters really are, then she dives deeper into the writing. I make notes for a while before I start to work on the outline. The notes are usually more about the characters. I need to know the characters really well before I start. Who they are, how they think, how they feel, what has happened to them, how they grew up. So that's how she starts. And then she writes an outline wow. and then she begins to actually get into the novel and juggles five books at a time. So she she married Vintner. I don't know when that relationship ended, but it did. Her last husband, she married in 2002, uh, Silicon Valley financier, Thomas James Perkins. Wow. Yep, unfortunately, their marriage also ended in 2006. Also, there are claims that her popular storylines are based from the events of her life, such as her having two ex-con husbands and other events that she kept hidden from the public. I don't know who, what, which other husband was an ex-con. But you read my mind. I was, please tell me. Yeah, I'm curious, but alas, I did not do more research into that because I have some other um, things that I prepared to share with wow. you. Yes. So I thought it would be interesting to share a little bit about the plot of The Promise, the book that she wrote while she was married to Danny Zugelder while he was in and out of jail. It's the classic tale. Wrapped up in the, in, in, uh, the, the, oh, I quiet. Neither of us can talk tonight. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of editing here. Mm -hmm. Say something. Well, well, he was struggling with, uh, (laughs) issues of incarceration. Closing the prison door. I think it was the, the like door creaky door. Yeah. Uh, he held the key to her heart, but not to his jail cell. Oh, she wins it. 
She comes around. She wins it. She closes the door for me. Thank you. Um, so in the story, classic tale, rich boy, poor girl, the mother doesn't approve. His mother. His mother does not approve. No. Rich mom. She's not good enough. No. That's stuck up. Definitely. Don't even give her a chance. Michael and Nancy. Nancy, good for nothing. You know, Marion, the mother, his mother does not approve. Mm. Mm. While visiting a park overlooking the Atlantic Ocean, they hide a costume jewelry necklace under a large rock, promising that they will love each other as long as it remains undisturbed, which they expect will be forever. Of course. <laughs> okay. It's a large rock. Who's going who's gonna to go under there and steal a beautiful costume jewelry necklace? Michael goes to his disapproving mother, Marion, and announces his plans to marry Nancy, but she does not approve. She thinks that Nancy will ruin his career and ruin their home and ruin their lives. And so they make plans to elope. But, alas, all is shattered when they are involved in a horrific car crash with his best friend, Ben Avery. Mm-hmm. On their, on, they're on their way eloping. It's not a good sign. Ben escapes with minor injuries, but Michael is rendered comatose. Nancy <sighs> suffers severe facial injuries. Oh, no. In swoops Marion, and she says Ugh. to Nancy, she says, I will pay for your facial reconstruction. If you leave my son alone? With an incredible, famous plastic surgeon in California, Dr. Peter Gregson. If you promise not to contact him, but I will tell him where you are if he wakes up and if he wants to find you, he can find you. Dun, dun, dun. Obviously she's not going to tell, you know, you know, she's not going to tell. No. And I would almost see her, you know, Marion paying off Dr. Grayson and saying like, give her a new face. Yeah. She unrecognizable and like, my son won't even be able to recognize her if they meet on the street. That may have happened. I don't know. I Like I said, I haven't read this book. She, go, she undergoes a series of surgeries, and she does come out with a different face. A beautiful face, though, obviously, right? And a new... To match her beautiful soul. A new beautiful face. She goes on to become a photographer. And Michael recovers, and his mother tells him, obviously, right, that Nancy died. Hmm. It was, a, yeah, R.I.P. Nancy, according to right. Marion's narrative. Yes, and then he goes on to become a famous architect. And mm. a job brings him to California, where Nancy is now living under another name. I don't know why she changes her name, but she chooses to change her name. It well, helps she's the so story. Famous now. <laughs> she's so famous now that she couldn't possibly continue to live you know, a regular, normal life as Nancy so-and-so. She must also be... What's her name? Marie. Okay. Marie Adamson. It's still rather close to his mother's name. Mm. I don't like that. Mm. I disagree, but you know, I might have a Marie, little bit Marianne, tied into like, it. Uh... <laughs> I have a little tied into the feelings there. Anyway, so Michael has become a famous architect and he wants Marie to show her photographs in the new building that he is the project that he's in California for. He doesn't recognize her. her Yes. (laughs) He doesn't recognize her, but she recognizes him. And when she. Also his name? 
she, Maybe. She, <laughs> he, he hasn't changed his name, right? <laughs> no. It's weird. You have the same exact name of the man I loved so long ago who was comatose. Did that ever happen to you? <laughs> Devastating car wreck? So. Same age, same area, same you. You look exactly the same. Marie asked him about a scar that he has above his eyebrow from the accident. And he looks visibly tense and stoically dismisses it, saying it was from a small accident that he has now forgotten. And so she's heartbroken. He thinks She thinks he doesn't care about her. He's forgotten about Nancy. And so she goes off to the plastic surgeon, who she's now in a relationship with. Dr. Grayson. Mm-hmm. And, um, I want my whole face back! <laughs> she says... She has to finish something so that she can, like, you know, close her close the doors of her past so that she can finally give herself over to this doctor. Um, she has to go to the East Coast. But Michael intercepts her. And so she goes back to the ocean, back to the Atlantic Ocean, and she goes to find the costume jewelry and toss it into the ocean. She uncovers the rock that they hid it under. It's not there. And she looks up and she sees Michael as he appears with the necklace. <gasps> Michael. And they reunite with a passionate kiss. Do you have goosebumps, Kim? I don't know what is wrong with me. I actually have goosebumps. Can you believe it? It's the best-selling <laughs> novel by Danielle Steele. You're right. She's a, a master, a mistress of the word. I mean, she does it. She literally, you know, I already had read that. And reading it again, I got goosebumps. I mean, the woman is a genius. I was a little concerned that perhaps Marion was going to get to the necklace somehow. Like, you know, maybe Michael was, like, murmuring in his comatose state, like, Necklace under heavy rock <laughs> overlooking Atlantic <laughs> costume jewelry necklace. Like, why does it have to be? Like, why do they have to call out that it's costume jewelry? It's a book. Well, like, it can be anything. It could be. I, like, well, I think because you know she's poor. You know he's young. You know it would be outlandish for him to buy her something like probably truly expensive. And then for them to hide it. So it's more of like a uh, something symbolic and a token of their loving commitment as opposed to... It's the sentiment know, that's heirloom. important, not the exactly. not the jewelry itself. Yeah. It's not, not the actual, like, you know, in, appraised value. So I thought that I would just read you a tiny little, a tiny little bit of chapter one of The Promise. Ooh. Yes, please. What do you think? I mean, maybe yeah. I should have read the plot after this. Hmm? I'm a little <sighs> backwards. No, I, I, I have more, I have greater buy-in now because I really want to see, like, where, how, tell me about how their love blossomed. Well, actually, that was the plot for the movie, the 1979 film, so we don't know how, how, how closely it follows the actual novel. So here we go. The early morning sun streamed across their backs as they unhooked their bicycles in front of the Elliott House on the Harvard campus. <laughs> <laughs> I just love how like name dropping it is. Also, when you said unhook, when you said unhook, I was like, they unhooked their bras, like both of them. <laughs> no, bike. Sorry. Continue. They stopped for a moment to smile at each other. It was May, and they were very young. Her short hair shone in the sunshine, and her eyes found his as she began to laugh. 
<laughs> well, Doctor of Architecture, how do you feel? Ask me that in two weeks after I get my doctorate, he smiled back at her, shaking a lock of blonde hair off his forehead. I love it when you uh, listen to audiobooks and the female narrator speaks in a man's, like, husky yeah. voice. Makes me laugh. Also, I mean, I we're lucky to know some architects. Uh, none of them, I mean, I, I love them all, but I, I wouldn't qualify any of them, ha- and none of them have their doctorate, but, like, how, how are you young with a doctorate of architecture? I don't know. Mm. Holes here, Danielle. Also, I take it back. All of our architect friends are very young and wonderful, and we love you. We love you, architects. To hell with your diploma. I meant after last night, she grinned at him again. (gasps) He rapidly swatted her behind. (laughs) He rapidly (laughs) swatted her behind. Like Like multiple times? Like, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. In front of the Elliott House in Harvard. Come on. Michael. Show some decorum. Smartass. How do you feel, Miss McAllister? Can you still walk? <laughs> they were hitching their legs over the bicycles now, and she looked back at him teasingly in answer. <laughs> Can you? And with that, she was off. Pulling ahead of him on the pretty little bike he had bought for her birthday only a few months before. He was in love with her. He had always been in love with her. He had dreamed of her all of his life. And he had known her for two years. I'm just going to leave it at that. Right? I don't think I need to go into it any further. How do they meet? Well, it's funny that you ask because that's exactly where it's going. It had been a lonely time at Harvard before that. And well into his second year of graduate school, he was resigned to more of the same. He didn't want what others wanted. He didn't want Radcliffe or Vassar or Wellesley in bed with him. He had known too many of those girls during his undergraduate days. And for Michael, there was always something missing. He wanted something more. Texture, substance, soul. He had solved the problem for himself very nicely the summer before with an affair with one of his mother's friends. Not that his mother had known. Of course. If Marion had known, she would have been so pissed. But it had been fun. She was a damned attractive woman in her late 30s. Years younger than his mother. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, she's so damn old. I'm so sorry, Michael. (laughs) Years younger than his mother, of course. And she was the editor at Vogue. (laughs) <laughs> like Anna Wintour. Anna Wintour. <laughs> but that had been merely sport for both of them. Nancy was different. Anna Wintour yeah. was the editor of Vogue when she was in her 30s. Also a red. Is, was that because she read herself in there? <laughs> I feel like like reddish, reddish. I don't know. I, I kind of get like a reddish vibe off her. Of her. She's blonde. Very well-maintained. Perfect. Perfect Bob. Bob. Yep. Yeah. He had known her from the first moment he had seen her in the Boston gallery that showed her paintings. There was a haunting loneliness about her countrysides. She, she, was, she was originally a painter. Mm. Before she switched mediums to yes. photography. There was a haunting loneliness about her countrysides, a solitary tenderness about her people that filled him with compassion. 
and made him want to reach out to them and to the artist who painted them. She had been sitting there that day in a red beret and an old raccoon coat. (laughs) Kim! I also used to wear a beret-ish kind of hat, so I can't talk too much. I have a beret. I just, I wear it on occasion now. Yeah, I love it. Just the... Go on, go on. Her delicate skin still glowing from her walk to the Charles Street Gallery. Her eyes shining, her face alive. He had never wanted any woman as he wanted her. He had bought two of her paintings and had taken her to dinner at Lockober's. But the rest had taken that- longer. Nancy McAllister wasn't quick to give her body or her heart. She had been too lonely for too long to give herself easily. At 19, she was already wise and well-versed in pain, the pain of being alone, the pain of being left. It had plagued her since she had been put in the orphanage as a child. She could no longer remember the day her mother had left her there shortly before she died. But she remembered the chill of the halls, the smells of the strange people, the sounds in the morning as she lay in her bed fighting back tears. She would remember those things for the rest of her life. For a long time, she had thought nothing could fill the emptiness inside her. But now she had Michael. And here are the goosebumps again. I just covered in goosebumps. I mean, okay. All right. I'm reading it. I'm going to read it. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to buy the book. I'm going to maybe actually, you know what? I'm going to listen to the audiobook. Yeah. And now, wait, do we just start a book club? Yeah, seriously. Who wants to be in our romance novel book club? <laughs> Kim might want there to be more than romance novels in it, but I don't. No, that's a, <laughs> I mean, this is a love podcast. This is, this is fine. And, um, I mean, the other, the other books that I'm listening to are way heavy. So, you know. Yeah. You need to a, love something a little light mm-hmm. on occasion. I mean, Yes. Well, I don't want to spoil. I think that I've given just enough to entice. Um, I mean, I did kind of give away the whole story already by reading the plot. But guess what? How many other books does she have for us to read? 178. Yeah, 178. 178 more books. And probably by the time this episode airs next week, she'll probably have banged out like two or three more. So, you know. You're right. The hits keep on coming. Yep. Does it say where Nancy went to, did she go to art school? Sorry. She went to Mass College of Art in Boston. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's you took her to Spars. <laughs> I love it. I'm glad you taught me about Danielle Steele today. Danielle Steele looks great. I actually was reading this excerpt from her own website, daniellesteele.com, and uh, she looks great. Yes, the, the the Google image rabbit hole I fell down was, she's stunning. Mm-hmm. She's a stunning woman. And she, would you say she's in her 70s? Yeah, I believe so. That's great. I'm very curious about her personal life, like, with her kids. And I'm just, I'm very intrigued by her. Because it sounds like she has a real, you know, likes a, a certain kind of lifestyle. She's the vibe 72. Off of her. Me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. This episode is going to be so full of edification about romance novels. I feel like this is the good, like, historic backdrop, you know, to then from everything you just shared and then to hear our conversation with Chloe Lee, who's very much a modern romance writer. 
we learn how romance novels were catapulted into mainstream by Danielle Steele and um, what's happening with them now. I mean, was that accurate? I don't know if they were catapulted into mainstream. I think women were still hiding them. I'm sorry, I got distracted because I just read this incredible line. In the Daily Mail. Romance novelist Danielle Steele, 71, admits she spends 20 hours a day writing in a cashmere nightgown at her custom book-shaped desk. And fans can't get enough of her process. <laughs> she needs to sleep more. Yeah. That's manic. That's not healthy. But at least she's wearing cashmere. She's cozy oh, and comfortable yeah. while she writes. I mean, that's why it's so good it. because she's so yes. comfortable. She can really feel everything, you know? So our new format is going to be when we have an interview that one of us will drop the story and the interview will take the place of the story. So tonight... Kim is the first casualty. hosting our interview. <laughs> yes, first casualty, sure. And I've just shared with you this, you know, tidbits about Danielle Steele, the remarkable Danielle Steele. And, Historic backdrop. Um, I think it's brilliant. Well, you know what's interesting is at some point I must have Googled something about romance novels, like a timeline, and there was definitely something coming up in like the 1800s around romance novels. Uh, but it was it was really unfavorable and it was kind of almost like definitely like oh this is it, it, I don't I don't remember exactly the framework of it but it was definitely like you know this isn't considered literature you know or it's mm -hmm. used yeah. to kind of like distract women or blah 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 but I think what's really great about what you just showed us was that men you can turn your nose up to the genre all you want but meanwhile Danielle is out there kicking your butts, writing all the books, and people are buying them too. How, 500 yeah. plus weeks on the bestseller list? 300 and something. 300. Yes. Oh, that's right. Sorry. 300 over. Yeah. It's a lot. Um, and, you know, and I think when, when you guys listen to the next bit with Chloe Elise, I think it really demonstrates how there's a lot more depth to this genre than uh, most people give credit to. And I think it's kind of interesting because even like you said, when you were listening to 50 shades of gray um, at work, there is this element of like, Oh my gosh, like, can I, can I listen to this everywhere? And I mean, with a lot of books, you probably can't listen to it everywhere because maybe you need a little bit more concentration or maybe it's not for mixed company or maybe you don't want to be blushing while writing work emails. No, but Chloe makes like a really it makes a really interesting point. You know, why is it why is violence acceptable mm -hmm. everywhere? Why is it like you would never think twice about reading a Stephen King novel, or you know, even something more more terrifying oh, for sure. on the on the train or at work or listening to one while you were at work, right? Yeah. And maybe that's um, inappropriately normalized. It is. Yeah, but mm -hmm. like listening to sex is something that you feel is shameful. I mean, it's just I literally, yes, definitely, I'm a victim of that, and not not because of well, you know, perhaps societal you were a bit distracted. But I, I, I honestly don't think that um, listening to hardcore uh, details about sex is is best for me while I'm sitting in an office next to five other people turning red, mm -hmm. turning bright red, you know, not the best for me. But. And I think what's nice, what Chloe talks about is how there's kind of like different genres of romance, but you know what? We're giving you too many teasers. We don't want to spoil it for you. Yeah, let's not.
Without further ado, Chloe Lease, everybody. Her new book is called Always Only You, and it was released August 4th. August 4th? August 4th. It's called Always Only You. It's an own voice contemporary sports romance. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. And it's the second in my new book series, The Bergman Brothers, but they are standalones anyway. You are our first interview. Yes. Woo! We are, it's our first. You're our first. Wow. We're interview virgins. (laughs) Oh oh my God, this is so perfect because he's a virgin. He's my first virgin hero. I had to make a hockey, like a hockey player, a virgin. It just, because they're such notorious uh, Casanovas. So I was like, oh well. Oh yeah. I didn't know that at all. Oh man, the whole puck bunny culture. Oh, it's so, anyway. I mean, I'm sure there are like. I'm sorry. What not, was that term? <laughs> puck, they're called puck bunnies. Really? So it's like, yes. And I. Okay. There's tons that's problematic about this. I'm not into <laughs> any of it. Um, but yeah, there's like a big stereotyping of like hypersexualizing hockey players and like the women who are into it. And then, like anything, there's a lot of like shaming for sex and oh, always yeah. be part of it um but yeah it's it's fun I like to flip things on their head in terms of what's generally done on romance because I just we only have one life why not you know yeah yeah mix it up mix shit up um so basically very common in the in the sports romance for a hockey romance and there are tons of them like a super famous one is the puck series by Helena Hunting they're all just like these really attractive, really big, really sexual men. And it's just like a super common, like women want to pick up a sports romance and read a hot guy. It's like a hockey romance. So I was like, well, I'm going to read a virgin who's like, was an ugly duckling and he still feels like a total misfit, but he's a super hottie. Now he doesn't know what to do about it, which is just (laughs) my favorite when guys don't know. Yeah. So Uh, someone going to, you know, spoil him. Yes. Yes. What is she (laughs) Yeah, to uh, to purloin his innocence. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So if we talk <laughs> like historical romance. Beautifully said. Beautifully thank you, said. thank you. Sold. I'm buying it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's actually really good. Um, she, when he tells her, like, he kind of, like, admits it gradually, like, in their conversation, she's just like, holy shit, you're a virgin. She just has this really big reaction. He's like, yeah. You know, she's so surprised. But she's totally smitten by that sweetness in him. Cause he was just awkward. And then as he grew up, he didn't like, he didn't feel all this tension he suddenly got for being successful and finally kind of filling into his body, like had changed him. So why did people treat him differently? And so right. it was really hard for him to like feel a connection to someone and feel like they actually saw him instead of just the Jersey or yeah. the body. So mm-hmm. yeah. Sounds kind of like jock 40 year old virgin. Yeah. I don't know how big of a romance reader either of you are. And if you're not at all cool, it's fine. But there's like a term, the cinnamon roll hero. Mm, He's basically the opposite of the alpha, right? Like Mm -hmm. the alpha holes, we call him, you know, the guy that we would smack in the dick in real life, but in books we're just like, (laughs) yes, yes, throw me around. Tell me I can't come. All that stuff. (laughs) Um, But the cinnamon roll is just like, you know, gentle and beta and touched into his feelings. Maybe he reads romance or he can cry, you know, so he's a bit of a, a cinnamon roll, but I gave him a dirty mouth just for the fun of it. But so that, by the time they get to it, he's just like, you want to fuck 
my face. And she's just like, what? <laughs> oh my God. Like it's just, and I had like five women who read early copies DM me and be like, you had to do it. You had to make <laughs> them a cinnamon roll and make them a dirty mouth. And now I'm ruined for men. <laughs> I know. I was going to say, I mean, this sounds problematic. Like maybe I can't read this because I'll be disappointed. Yeah. You'd be like, that real, I can't. Men, real men suck. <laughs> real men really suck. No, I'm nah, they're, they're good guys out there. I read- There a, are. We have a family cabin in Pennsylvania that's been in my family for like uh, 150 years. And that's so, where you read romance. Yeah, exactly. No. Someone, someone in my family reads a lot of romance. <gasps> oh, did you find like a bodice ripper? Like a when, vintage- when I was of desire, his turgid column, like all that. Robbing member. Yes, yes. Robbing member. That's what it was. Um, it, oh. I I was like thirteen, and I'll never forget it. It was called Gondar. It's like an Amazon oh. woman romance, oh. and I, I, other realm. I didn't know anything about it, and my mind was like totally blown. Like I had no idea what I was picking up, and then I couldn't put it down, and I was yeah, like, "No, ah! you could." And ever since then, I haven't. I, I like, I should have read more by now because I find them to be like wildly entertaining. But um, oh, they are. There's so many good ones. It's something that like I, I'm always like, oh, I just really wish that I could have gone into that line of work because I think I would really, really just enjoy it. But alas, you know, I'm not a writer, so what am I going to do? Yeah, you can read. I can read them. I can read them. You can read them, and you can always, you can always dabble. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Ever stop? Listen to my father wrote a porno. Yes. No. Oh, hilarious. Well, you, you might, it. you might not enjoy it because that this is your craft and it, you know, it sounds like you do it very well. Yeah, but <laughs> you, it's not, it, it's different. I don't, I wouldn't call well, it. Well, the, the humor, the humor is in, it's like painfully poor crafted nature of, oh, yeah. of what it is paired with the embarrassment that he's reading what he probably figures is his father's sexual fantasies. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So it's, it's like cringe on top of cringe. Yeah, it sounds wildly entertaining. Yeah, it yeah. was just something like the, the way you were describing. Um, totally, like yeah. Like the conversation with your friends who read the early script or the, the re mm -hmm. early releases reminded yeah. me about the banter that they have talking about the my dad wrote a porno bit. That's awesome. No, yeah, I mean, there's... That's the thing about romance is there is really problematic stuff out there. Like, oh, I should have brought it up, but my friend sent me a vintage Joanna Lindsay and she's like famous for her problematic romances, like 80s. And he's buck naked on the cover. She's in like full 70s makeup. He's like, did he fucking her on a cover? And she's got Impressive. like- it well i mean it's something but so like there's and there's like ones where the women there's tons of problematic like consent is not clear in mm. especially in historical romances like well into the 90s but you know it's kind of like anything that i think we're learning as a culture is like when you know better you do better and mm -hmm. something that is definitely part of why i'm passionate about writing romance the way that i write romance is that this is about reflecting back like where we do need to be writing crystal clear consent writing um a woman actually having to show a guy how to touch her clit and come and like and on my first book that um in this newer series i the first time they're together he comes before her and it's like you know he's still touching her and she comes shortly after him but i was like it's, i think it's really important to show 
he's, the whole book, they're like crazy horny for each other. And the first time he gets with her, he's really going to be able to like keep it up for 35 minutes. Like, I don't think so. No. And so I think it's really important in romance to write something believable and something that reflects what we value and what we care about. Um, and that I always felt like when a woman reads, or man, both, I wish men or men read romance, but like, I want her to read that and say, I can ask for that. Or like, that's something that isn't happening in my sex life. And maybe that's why I'm not coming because like, I know a lot of girls, women who grew up in purity culture, who didn't learn. I taught my friend who's five years older than me, what her body parts were called like a couple years ago. And, and that's because she grew up like an extreme shame culture about her body. So we have like a, a bunch of women in our society who don't, who feel shame about arousal, about masturbation, about orgasm, who don't know the first thing about how to communicate that with their partners. And I think a lot of guys are willing, but they don't know. I didn't have good sex education about like how it works. And I don't know. So I see, I take my responsibility as a romance writer who writes what I call open door romance. I hate when we call romance clean or dirty because sex is not mm. dirty. So a book without romance could be a chaste romance or a closed door romance if it's implied, but it's not on page. I write open door romances and I want your experience of them to feel like something that you either recognize as a healthy practice in your life that is just a really fun experience to get to read and to feel affirmed in or to be empowered to be like, oh, I can want that and I can maybe have that. So yeah, that, that matters to me because that's definitely was part of how romance was became important in my life because I did grow up in purity culture with a ton of shame. Um, so yeah, it's, it's like, I can kind of laugh about those books and I think it's important to contextualize them as really problematic, uh, the old ones mm -hmm. <laughs> like that, that Joanna Lindsay, but I feel like you can't play around with that now. Books published now, I don't have grace for them if there's not crystal clear consent. That's so great that you're doing that because I think there's this false notion that like consent takes all the fun out of it or like, oh, uh, can I put my hand here? Or like, is it okay? You know, it's like, there's completely a way to do all that and it can yes. still be hot. It can still be enjoyable. And it's so good that you're capable of like demonstrating, modeling that in the words of, of your book. Yeah, that is, and this is something I'm still finding. This. Here's the cover guys. Look at that. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Please use that in the podcast. That wow. Yeah, we can I mean, yeah. what is that called? So tender. What ten, yeah, text, tender text. is tender is the storm. But listen, this is the blurb on this is perfect problematic romance 101. When a man's passion explodes into violence, only a woman's <gasps> desire can turn it to love. Oh my goodness. Let's, oh, let's, let's no. go codependent and toxic real fast. Yeah. <laughs> Blurring the lines between abusive <laughs> relationships. Right? Or making a man's behavior completely on the onus of the woman. Like, yeah. you know, and let the talk. I'm going to talk about parentifying marriages a lot other time. But all that to say, <laughs> what were we saying about romance? Consent. Yes. Hot, hot consent. Consent yes. can be hot. Yes, it can. And I think this is, this is something, this is also like my big, so Instagram is like my main platform because I find, I like taking photos. I'm a visual person. And I also find that the amount of text it affords me allows me to convey some of my convictions as a romance writer, as a woman, as a feminist. And it just, it's been my quickest way to connect with people. And I've posted a number of times that I have linked in a specific place on my website too, where I talk a lot about how both our antipathy and our, our stigma around romance and also 
these ideas that like romance that's clear on consent and all that are, they're basically tied up in our internalized misogyny and embedded patriarchy. You know, if someone asked a lot of people, hey, what book are you reading? And if you were in the middle of like what we call bodice rippers or something, it'd probably be on your Kindle first. You, you wouldn't flash the cover. Um, and you'd probably read it at home where you'd just be like, oh yeah, I'm just like reading like a good story about such and such and such. But if someone was like, what are you reading? You're reading um, like the latest Stephen King or something. You'd be like, oh, I read this book about, and then you talk about all this graphic violence, horrible things being done to people. So this is when I always say, let's back this up and see what have we masculinized in culture and what have we feminized? And we have said that the onus and mental and emotional load of relationships and love falls in the woman's realm, right? And that all the kind of gritty, real life, tough things are, and serious stuff is, is man stuff. So we, we often consider fiction that isn't romance masculine or much more so, or even just women's fiction that doesn't have sex, even though it's like all about a relationship, that's more literary, that's women's fiction. But then we have romance, which is like, first of all, really hard to write well because you spend the entire time in someone's psyche, like really trying to unpack their childhood, their current life experiences, their life goals. And you have to talk about and hopefully, honestly, and respectfully portray intimacy, which is hard for people to do as humans, let alone to write it well. And we dismiss this genre, even though it's like one of the, maybe the second most highest grossing genre in fiction. Mm. Romance is huge and it, it portrays like the most positive and central parts of life which is in relationships sometimes procreation you know um our arc as people and our relationships and we have so much stigma and shame about it because we said that, well that's woman's stuff that's written by women for women yeah you know. i never thought about it that way that's so interesting where you and, know in the comparison to violence specifically yeah like, why is that? Why are we so okay with that? We don't even think twice about it. Yeah, no, know? no, didn't even think about it. Uh, time, time out. I found this thing, Gondar. It's by Nicholas Lord. Do you know who he is? I know. It's pretty no. bad. It's like, wait, we're I believe it. Right now. Well, guys, <laughs> guys, really old romance writers are like, actually, this is something that I feel like we need to be careful about in the romance community. Granted, though, it's pretty hilarious when, like, a guy's new to writing romance and tries his hand at it because he's, like, the boobies of her boobage and her nipples. It's just, like, it's so bad <laughs> and, like, hyper-focused on things. And you're just, like, no, yeah, no, some work. <laughs> Spend some time with a woman's body and a writer's group. Um, yeah. Do you, are you ever on the Reddit? Do you ever see on, uh, on Reddit men writing women? It's, no, it's but I'm whole, sure it's there too. Yeah, it's a whole sub, a whole subreddit around just the problematic attempts at men writing women, yeah. whether it's like writing about women or women, you know, you know, from that first person. And yeah, it, it's a miss. It's a miss. It is. Um, yeah. That's actually something that's like a nice segue into something that I really do care about. And in, in the bookstagram community on Instagram, which is kind of that corner, people are just posting bookish stuff. Um, there's been a lot of discussion lately about that, like men who write using pseudonyms that don't clarify like in their bio or in their publicity that they're men rather than women. Hmm. Um, also just like an important discussion, the black author community and indigenous as well and people of color being like, white people need to stop writing our perspectives and need to stop kind of cashing in on our trauma or our sort of like inspirational experiences 
um, people with chronic illnesses, um, with disabilities, being really tired of typically bodied people and in these privileged perspectives kind of writing what's called like sick lit, which is sort of like this, we write these stories, um, like a walk to remember could be an example of that. Six sure. feet of holding our stars. Yeah, stuff like that, that if you look at people who actually have cystic fibrosis or who actually have terminal cancer, what have they thought about those books? They're generally not the reviewers that you're hearing from. And it's kind of this unfortunate, voyeuristic, near-death experience of like, you get to kind of go through the visceral emotions that's, that this author has hopefully tried to, to portray. And then you kind of get to go at the end, well, I'm so glad that's not me you know, but I got this kind of like, and now I'm going to like embrace my life. Like, and a lot of people who feel like they've been othered by portrayals when authors aren't kind of doing their work, having sensitivity readers, or they don't have the experience, the represented um, or attempted to be represented people are kind of like, you're using us, you know, you're using our experience instead of like amplifying it. Right. Um, and that goes, Please go ahead. I was just going to ask you, how do you still, because you want to be able to, they want to be represented also, right? You don't want to leave people out of stories. Mm -mm. Um, so, was, so just research, not just researching, doing the research, doing the work, getting to know people in those situations and really understanding where they are and where they're coming from is a better way for someone to interpret them and, um, yeah. and write from their perspective. And then like you're saying, a sensitivity like, reader, sensitive, sensitivity reader. Yeah. Super yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so like all of my books that I've written, the person, the main character has a disability of some kind. I think it's because, you know, I was a late diagnosis on the autism spectrum, like aligning with what used to be called Asperger's. And I just, I always, I have never read with this expectation that apparently a lot of people have, which is to like see themselves in fiction. Like, oh, I right. didn't, I couldn't relate. I didn't identify with her. I have never relate. Like, Women's neurotypical women's brains, when I hear them or read them on page, I'm just like, oh, fascinating. <laughs> like, I don't work like that. I just realized that when I was reading romance, I wanted to see people who don't typically get like the starring role, who's usually like the token inspirational friend in the wheelchair or like the cute younger brother with autism. And it's like, um, these are people who have complex lives. They're not two dimensional. They grow up and they're sexual, and they want relationship. Um, so like my first three books, it's a trilogy, and she has an incomplete spinal injury. And I corresponded with a number of women who have that and experienced that. And I did a lot of research. And it was, I just realized, we don't let everybody be in the center of the narrative culturally. And I think I love what Oscar Wilde said, you know, life imitates art. And sometimes we need art to push us where we are yet as a society and maybe just in this kind of subconscious way that I just thought, well, I, I don't know. I want to keep writing. I want to write things that are a little bit different that push the envelope and invite people to see other people as the romantic stars and as sexual beings. Um, so yeah, I just, each of my books, I've, I've just thought, okay, who haven't I read yet? Whose condition haven't we seen? Um, and I always try to find a sensitivity reader. I do a lot of research. And I'm always open to going back into my books and changing if I really mess something up. But I've generally had really meaningful, like really moving emails from people. I have had like five women so far who have spinal injury just be like, that was the first book I saw where I was in a romance and I was sexualized and it meant a lot to me. Um, so I want people to see themselves and I want people who don't see themselves to broaden their empathy. Amazing. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. That's fantastic. And it's also, I think what brings me to kind of 
talking about that is that there is a lot of conversation like in this, you know, men writing women. I think we're gonna, I think we're kind of in a turning point in fiction. Uh, there was a lot of controversy with American Dirt that it was written by a white woman um, about, you know, uh, immigrants from Mexico versus the undocumented immigrants, which was written by an own voice writer. So own voice, you know, that, that being someone who's from a marginalized experience or identity writing a character that typifies that as well. Uh, Oprah picked American Dirt. It was flying off the shelves. And then there was all these people who'd gone through the experience saying, no, this isn't, this isn't it at all. This is really bad. Janine Cummings wrote that. And then Carla Cornejo Villavicencio wrote The Undocumented Immigrants. And that, that's gotten a fraction of the press, you know. So I just think that basically where we're heading in terms of who gets to write about who is shifting, um, that we're going to start seeing pushing back on the kind of cultural, often masculine uh, practice of gaslighting of like, oh, you're being too sensitive about this. And you're just, you know, it's good that people care about this stuff at all. Um, or even like <laughs> things like, no, consent needs to be really clear in books. People be like, oh, well, that's no fun. You know, can I, can I put my hand here? Can I put my hand there? Can I touch you now? Like, that's all stuff that's meant to undermine mm-hmm. our evolution. <laughs> morally and ethically as a culture and i and i do think more and more we're going to see books and romances written by people about people like them um and that's definitely what i'm trying to do and that's why my my next book is my first own voice romance about a woman on the autism spectrum who does what a lot of adult women do which is mask a lot kind of hide Mm-hmm. The things that are hard for her and kind of put on a face and a performance of neurotypicality and um, you kind of get to get inside her brain. I wrote it in first person perspective. So you really, it's I and me and my, and so you get to really be with her. And uh, yeah, it's my hope that it, it helps people who are adult autistics and have kind of what we call high cognitive function, recognize themselves and feel represented and that people who don't get it and only kind of know autism from these really narrow portrayals that we see generally in culture and in film and in fiction will um, we'll be like, oh, wow, this is way more nuanced. This yeah, spectrum yeah. The disorder difference to me, this spectrum is really a spectrum. So, yeah. It's great that you are, you are providing that voice. And it's interesting because what I hear a lot of what you're saying too is through, through writing and through your books, it sounds like you're really helping to destigmatize so many different things like people have a better insight of you know um what's like a neuroatypical individual you know what that might look like what Mm -hmm. that might look like in a relationship um you know and or even like how consent doesn't have to be this trivialized idea it can Mm -hmm. definitely be integrated into a healthy normal relationship it can be hot Mm, that's great yeah. consent is so all these hot. layers like, <laughs> ooh, I mean truly it's it's what I hear so much from romance readers women are just like the man owning emotional responsibility carrying mental and emotional load of their intimate life like ooh. doing yeah, ooh, oh, yeah. dirty ooh. there's yeah talk <laughs> talk consent and emotional load to me <laughs> we have these like blasted voices that get to tell the story and styles of storytelling but that I really do hope in breaking down stigma and saying everybody gets to have a voice, everybody gets to tell their story, that we are going to see basically a democratization of storytelling. That, um, and I think too that this is, a, this is a really important segue into you know what you guys talk about, which is just love, that 
love, I think when we write romances and, and, and love's just all easy or it's like this really overwrought drama or it's like the super tired and sexist, like the spurned woman, like throwing a wrench in their plans and, you know, trying to sabotage the new woman. Like if we write romances where like real life is the conflict or, you know, childhood trauma or simply um, a growing subgenre in romance it, or a trope is the marriage in crisis, talking about the work of marriage um, or committed long-term partnership, that when we write realistic romance, we assert and we champion the truth that love is work, that love isn't something that falls from the sky and that it isn't always easy and maybe it doesn't always last but it is worth it and everybody's worth being loved. You know, if we give people who don't generally get to be stars in romance that space, we're saying implicitly and explicitly, you deserve love. Hmm. And because that's ableism in our culture is that we desexualize people who don't fit this really narrow mold of belonging, hetero, cis, white, um, healthy weight even, what we say is a healthy weight, um, a certain economic bracket. We marginalize all the rest of that and if we don't portray it we're reinstantiating ableism and this really really tiny tiny narrative of belonging when fat people love uh, paralyzed people love blind people love autistic people love like we all do and and that, i just think it's such a rich experience when we get to read that and absorb that because then we get to say we truly support love in all of those expressions it's all valid and it's cool because it's different Right. Different people love in different ways. Um, so I just think That's it, so it will, good. It will yeah, continue 100%. to en enrich, enrich our understanding and appreciation of love. Yeah, bringing it to the mainstream that it isn't just one version. Right. It's not Ken and Barbie. It's like all of us. <laughs> Thank God. Right. Though I did, I did have, I did play with Ken and Barbie a lot. And one time, my mom had company coming, and she came in, and, and Ken and Barbie were naked in bed. And I was like, don't worry, mom, they're married. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag purity culture. <laughs> I, I loved I loved Ken and Barbie. And it was funny, though, because a, a childhood friend of mine, like we reconnected years and years later, and she was like, do you remember when we'd always play Barbies at your house? I was like, yeah. And she's like, yours? Barbie was always divorced and adopted Skipper. I <laughs> love it. She's you like, I didn't realize that was... Yeah, like that was a little maybe unusual for children's, you know, fantasy world. That was avant-garde. I love it. Yeah. I think because there were so many, so many Barbies, I only had one Ken and I don't know. Yeah, like Ken painted kind of his molded underwear. I was always disappointed about that. I was like, come on. Come on. He's wearing underwear. <laughs> I was curious from a young age. Definitely. Well, you don't have to say, I think is very intriguing about and very positive about everything you've shared with with us about your work today is that there's a lot of retrospection around how damaging like pornography can be not only to to women but to men and particularly like in this day and age kids can just you know find it on their phones on the internet and some of the many reasons why it's it can be very uh, damaging and destructive is you know representing these unrealistic ideas around what what sex looks like body image uh relationships um and all, all of these pieces like you're even saying like reinforcing this very narrow idea around what 
sex looks like or who has sex. Right. Um, and when it, it's what, and usually when it's a little bit broader, it's because it's like fetishized or exploitive. Yeah. So yeah. it sounds like you're able really to paint these narratives with like very real characters having very real experiences, but that do tend to be, I thought that was very interesting, like closed door, you know, like mm. we don't talk about that. That's, you know, like doing that, like hanky panky, like youth euphemism, whatever, like that, but not yeah. actually talking about it. And so to kind of bring that to light is, sounds incredibly empowering to so many people. Plus yeah. also enjoyable to everyone else, even if you can't personally identify. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I do think that, um, it, anytime we represent intimacy, be it in film or in written word, I feel a responsibility about it um, to represent it in a way that I believe is healthy. And, and that can be really diverse. Uh, you know, there are people who love, like in my first couple books, they do like power play um, and it's super fun and it's hot and it's communicative. Um, but there's just so many ways to express love. And I think, I don't think you're like not feminist or not empowered or evolved if you don't want to read romance that's open door. Like, there are lots of great reasons to not want to read sex on page. And I respect that. I do think though, that like a lot of things that we're studying, you know, like one of the biggest things that helps um, women with like arousal disorder, big air quotes around that, because I think it's like, it's, it's kind of putting a stamp of negativity. Whereas women, I think are just really trying to unpack a lot of internalized cultural shame. But the biggest thing that helps that so far is like basically like erotic readings is women daily listening to basically erotica being read audiobook like we have we rewire ourselves when we read and see real bodies having real intimacy and doing the real work of love um and that's also like I'm, i feel like i'm talking a lot about a lot about sex but just too about like the types of relationships people can have that they're really different that different types of people who maybe we don't, don't even think could be easy to love or could engage well um like i write i've written a couple like they're called tough heroines. People are like, oh, she's just so tough and cold. You know, could she really, could a guy really stick around for that? It's like, these are all these little prescriptive cues here, right? That say, again, we've hit, we've hit a little wall where we say, oh, I don't think that person could actually be loved, you know? So I take some risks as a writer and I know I'm going to get a two-star review on Amazon. Of, she was so cold and prickly and she drove me nuts when if the guy was like that, they'd be like, he was so hot. You know, yeah. but I'm going to do that because I, I want, there are women out there and they email me and say, I saw myself and, and they deserve to be shown that they're loved. Um, there's actually a really cool romance coming out through Berkeley pub publishing house called the roommate. And it's actually about a guy who's in the adult entertainment industry. And uh, yeah. she apparently did a lot of research about it. I, I liked it. Um, and his, the young woman in the story, she's a real a pearl clutcher from the East Coast, sort of like a uh, Rory Gilmore. And um, they end up shacking up for the summer. And he delves back into the emotional side of sex, which he definitely had to, you know, compartmentalize for his work. And she gets sick for um, her pleasure and her, her identity as a sexual woman. So the roommate's a kind of interesting uh, meta commentary on how we talk about love and portray it and the porn industry. So it was pretty cool. Cool. I recommend. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's They're giving us lots to put on our uh, our bedside table to read. I yes. Know, like granting myself permission to read whatever I want to. Oh, heck yes. 
<laughs> I am so, I so firmly believe that, that you <laughs> Unapologetically. know, uh, yeah, there's actually a hashtag on Instagram, unapologetic romance reader. Yeah. Um, nice. It's a cool community. Nice. It is. It's, it's, it's great because I, you know, you see women from every background, every walk of life, just talking about what the genre means to them. And it means something different to so many people, but it really is so often for people, the genre where you get to go back and kind of think about how you think about love and how you maybe confront points in yourself that you don't feel are lovable or um, that you don't have hold out hope for, or that you don't think that you think you have to change to belong. And just more and more romance is just obliterating those mantras that of, you know, um, of unworthiness, you know, that you have to change or, and then you can be here and then you can be loved. So yeah, that's just why I love writing the genre. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, well, we love I clearly it. needed to send you questions. <laughs> <laughs> I did have them answered, but we just talked so well. You did. You did. <laughs> well, there's... actually, I will say, do you have a favorite love story? I do. You know, I'll just let you interpret that however you'd like. Yeah, however you want. I actually, it is a book. Um, and it's by an indie author, and um, Emma Scott is her name, and it's called Rush, and it's about a man who is uh, like an extreme avid outdoorsman journalist, and he has he takes a terrible fall, goes through a ton of physical trauma, and ends up being completely blind. And the woman who happens to tumble into his life through funny circumstances is a virtuosic violinist but she hasn't played in years because she went through trauma so they're two traumatized people and they're enemies at first it's a very famous and well-loved trope in romance the enemies to lovers um so they go through this huge arc but what i just loved about it as a story was um it's about two people surviving life-changing trauma and they uplift each other without slipping into codependence which is pretty significant you know um and they work through their self-worth struggles. There's a point in the book where they separate and kind of do some self-work. Um, they seek outside health, uh, help to become healthier. And then they just end up finding this really beautiful self-acceptance and, and love in each other. And I think that captures the best form of love, um, that love doesn't ask us to change, uh, but wants us for who we are while inspiring us to change in the ways that allow us to grow into our best selves. Amazing. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I ugly cried through that book. I wrote it down. <laughs> Lots of ugly crying. <laughs> and it's hot because you explore sex through a man who doesn't have his sight. So his, the rest of his senses are just oh. like through the roof. <laughs> <sighs> I might have to reread that book. <laughs> there you go. Talk about it. <laughs> and and tell us once more about your book coming out August 4th. Yes, my upcoming, my forthcoming book is Always Only You, Bergman Brothers number two. It's a standalone and a series about five brothers, two sisters of a large Swedish American family and their wild adventures to happily ever after. And it's a known it. voices romance, autistic heroine, and a big nerdy late blooming hockey star. I, I'm going to read your intro as your outro. Okay. Um, 
because I, I feel like this is, this is, it's good. It's good information on you. <laughs> Chloe writes stories that like people resist categories, portraying marginalized underrepresented voices and experiences. Her books are hot, witty, full of heart and keep you on the edge of your seat. She's an avid reader, Harry Potter lover and eats more peanut butter cups than she probably should. And I need to clarify that those are 100% Chloe's words because I would not judge you on the peanut butter cup eating it's, it's, whatsoever. It's definitely not about my hips. It's more about like, it's the Louis C.K. line. And I know he's a problematic person, but I, I stand firmly by his saying is that the meal's not over when I'm full. It's over when I hate myself. And that's how I am with cups. <laughs> it's just, I'm in pain when I finish them. I don't want to be in pain. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm loving my COVID, my COVID thighs. <laughs> Good. I recently had this Talenti gelato that was like peanut butter cup, some some sort of situation, many layers. Mm. It didn't stand a chance. I mean, mm. I didn't eat it by myself, but I would have if the other person hadn't been there. Yeah. I recommend it if you mm. enjoy ice cream and if you yeah. like any version of peanut butter cup. I don't know if you're like brand specific, Reese's no. only or I'm an equal opportunity peanut butter All chocolate. Right. Yum. Mm-hmm. Mario and his retching over there <gasps> you don't like oh more for us this. more for us <laughs> yeah <laughs> are you a mint chocolate type because i like that too oh i like mint chocolate i like chocolate of any variety except for when that's it's paired peanut, with peanut butter peanut butter mm-hmm. it's a textural mm. thing for me it's oh that's like, fair yeah and i and i like peanut butter uh, so that's funny so it's yeah. the combination that doesn't work for you it's something i don't know just it it's unsettling. It's unsettling to me. <laughs> you don't have to defend your choices. Yeah, we respect you. them. I appreciate that. Anyway, I'm leaving a whole lot more out there because I can be, you know, Thank a you. very passionate eater. So, you know, <laughs> peanut butter cups are safe in my company. I, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Chloe, thank you so much. Yes, thank you. That was really wonderful. Thank I hope you. That this is a, um, you know, this is a great launch point for our entry into interviewing. This was a, yeah. a pleasure. And well, I'm honored. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Oh, yeah, thank. Oh gosh, thank you, Taya. I love that she just immediately yes. was like, "I haven't listened to your podcast. I haven't read your book, but the two of you should talk." <laughs> it's like, so okay. Taya. It's just so her. I love her. Like she to have that um, insight. Uh, to understand even with not having you know because she's like you know a super smart professor wonderful person having babies and running her life just to know yeah. to be able to recognize this is a great point of connection that's that's her mind right there in the works and I admire it is, it is. yeah she's great um thank you exciting this was really nice it was good to meet you both very nice yes to you. all right and, and good luck in your future podcast I look forward to hearing oh, them. thank, thank you, you. Thank I'm going to pre-order your book right now. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. I would recommend starting with the one before it because there are spoilers about the brother uh, in the second okay. one. So only when it's us is the first one. It's, um, did you, have you read The Hating Game? It's like a super popular romance. Mm-hmm. Well, I recommend that one. Okay. And, but, um, I'm taking notes. Yeah. The Hating Game, <laughs> like everybody loves it. It's just one of those sparkly, one of my favorite lines is she says to him, it's only from her perspective. So the guy's kind of a mystery, which I normally find really problematic because it's like, yeah, let's leave men outside of this because they don't need to bear their emotional. But anyway, it works in this book. And she has a great line when she, he's just driving her nuts. She says, oh, I want to juice your head like a lemon. 
Sally Thorne, um, it's just chef's kiss writing. Um, <laughs> the audiobook is really good too. So if you're more of an audiobook listener, um, and it reads quick. And um, yeah, so only when it's us precedes this next one. And it's um it's a it's a fun one. Lots of pranks and a slow burn. Like by the end of it, you're just like, just do it already. <laughs> a reviewer just tagged me on Instagram with a picture of it and said, this was the most sexually frustrating intimate book I've ever read. She's <laughs> <laughs> like, and that's a praise. I was like, as long as it worked for you. So, yeah, I mean, make, make them hold out a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you if want you, to. If, you if want I to. want to. Yeah, in my earlier books, like they're getting it on by like chapter 15, but this one, it's just, it's called Slow Burn. Anyway, so thank you very much for your time and uh, I'll be on the lookout from your email and stuff. I think we Great. should be thanking you. Thank you for your time. Yes. Yeah. Thank, you. thank you. We can thank And all other. your ed- yes. edification on this this brand new genre. Well, brand new to me, I should say. This is new to me. So I, I appreciate I feel like I just had a like a um, romance for dummies. Like uh, Oh yeah, I, mo- I modern romance. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I actually had a, a bookstagram reviewer who DM'd me. She's like, I had a really weird dream last week where you were teaching, you were a professor and teaching about writing romance and like writing good consent and, uh, and embedded patriarchy. I was like, that's my ultimate goal. So yeah, I mean, good. I would take I, a class. I would sign up right yeah. now. It's, you know? Yeah. Once this COVID life is done and I can worm my way into my, uh, my old professor's office and talk some sense into him. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that was an education for me. I don't know about you, but I learned so much. I, well, yes. And I'm going to learn more because I definitely need to read so many of these books that, that Chloe suggested, as well as The Promise. Right. The Promise. Yes. I know. I want to read them all. I'm, I'm very excited to read them and to, as I said, unapologetically enjoy them. And not, I don't even think twice about it. That's okay. Here I am on a love podcast. I like love. You only like it? You don't love it? I love it. I fucking love love, okay? <laughs> I won't shame you for only liking love. I'm not going to yuck your yum. You know what I mean? If you want to love love, that would be fantastic. But if you only I like love it. it. I love love. <laughs> You know what I'm crushing on this week, Kim? <gasps> Tell me. Love. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna have to go. You're gonna have to say more than that. That that sounds like a cop out to me. You start. What's, okay. What are you crushing well, on this week? I also just want to say this. This is my little preamble. Research shows. Let me push my like glasses up my nose. There's a lot of really great mental health benefits to expressing gratitude. And kind of when I think of like, what am I crushing on? it makes me kind of think of like, what am I especially bringing attention to? I'm taking this class through Stanford on Coursera, which is awesome. And it talks about love as a force of social change. And one of the readings they had us do was talking about the act of loving, like participating in this act of love. Actually, so I guess maybe I could even say like, this is what I'm crushing on because it really had me reflect differently on what does it mean to to love something intentionally practicing loving someone something a moment it doesn't have to be this big glorious experience it can be these small 
fleeting moments that you enjoy that you can like lean into. And I do try to practice that in my life, but it's so easy to like get lost in the shit of the world, especially I feel like last couple of weeks. I mean, you can say that every week, I think. And so there's this really lovely idea of just bearing witness to things, things that might kind of make you have wonder in the world, or, you know, it doesn't have to be these breathtaking moments. So I, maybe I'll say that I'm kind of crushing on this idea of being more intentionally loving in just like a day-to-day practice. And that, that is something that is not always easily accomplished because it's just when things are stressful and go, 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 you get lost. You, you don't have time. Their attention doesn't seem to fall on those things. But when you slow down and you're paying attention, all of a sudden the whole world is full of like opportunities to love. The restaurant down the street is cooking something wonderful. And you're like, Ooh, yes. You know, it's like a nice breeze on like a hot day. Yes. I'm a big sucker. Baby feet. They're so cute. Yeah. Baby toes wrap around your finger. Like, oh, that's still my heart. So I think trying to, I'm trying to, I'm, I would say maybe I'm crushing on trying to find love in the small moments. I think that some of the struggles for me are, you know, that, and I think that probably there are other people out there who can relate to this. It's just that our lives are so different right now in this period of time mm-hmm. where, you know, there isn't as much change and you can't um, go and enjoy so many of the things that you once did, the people that you once could see. And, you know, there's a lot. It's hard sometimes to not focus on what you don't have in a time like this when there is so much to focus on and so much positive to focus on, hopefully for everybody. There are still things that they can focus on that are positive. And then I feel that I do find things that I'm very grateful for. There have certainly a lot of gratitude. I just, they're very closely surrounding me right now because I'm in a very small and tight bubble, but I'm very happy about the things and thankful for the things that are in this bubble. Today, I went on a run with my husband, but I hadn't gone on a run since before I had the babies and it was pretty awesome and I felt good all day because of it. So crushing on my little sprint, sprint and run this morning, that was a really fun thing that I did and it was a beautiful day. And we've had two really beautiful days in the 70s. Crushing hard on summer days that are in the 70s. Yes. Yes. Right? Not not humid and in the 70s. Woo! Yeah. Nice thing. Can I read you uh, two lines from this book? The book is called The Art and Practice of Loving, which I'm not going to lie. When I started reading it, I was like, what is this hippy-dippy bullshit? Fuck no, I'm not reading this. And then I was like, all right, there's... Uh, I, I can I can get behind it. So actually kind of similarly to what you just said, it says waiting to love something extraordinary keeps the extraordinary from sneaking into the ordinary. By loving the ordinary, you make it extraordinary. And I mean, I can totally see that. Because I think like 70 degrees, 70, like, you know, you might look at it on the forecast and be like, all right, cool. It's not going to be as hot. But you were like relishing in it and you were doing something. You were like really bringing your attention to it, which amplified it and its meaning to you and I and I agree like it is hard to find the shine in the day-to-day in the small things and the big things so frequently which I think is why I'm kind of attempting to be intentional about finding something it's like that in DBT we we talk about uh, dialectical behavioral therapy which is like a theoretical orientation for for counseling a lot of times people talk about like finding that kernel of goodness 
when someone's straight up run. You're like, I got to just find that like kernel of goodness. And I'm going to focus on that until it kind of allows me to appreciate and enjoy this person in a nicer capacity. And I feel like that's kind of what we have to do with the world at times. (laughs) And maybe especially the whole 20, the year 2020. Yeah, year 2020, where this week, many are without power. Yeah. uh, And worse. Yeah, there's a a lot of of problems. But that's, I mean, and even, I I think, with this podcast, right? Like, here's an opportunity to have a little kernel of respite, a little something hopefully positive or good in the dumpster fire. (laughs) Yeah. Trying to give you a 70 degree day, guys. We're trying yeah. to give you a 75 degree day. Go jogging right. through our podcast on this glorious yes. 75, low humidity, beautiful <laughs> August day. Yeah. All right. All right. Email us, guys. Tell us what you think. We'd love to hear from you. Yes. And some people are sending us stories on Instagram. We love it. More, more, more. Yes, please. Send us more. Talk to us. Email us. And tell us what you want to be called, you know? Excited to name our listeners. Yes. We want to, you know, identify your chosen name. (laughs) Kim's already named you. Crusher! (laughs) Okay. All right. Love you. Love you. Good night. Good night. Good night. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. You've heard from us, and we'd love to hear from you. Do you have a love story to share? Looking for some advice of the love variety? Reach out on email, more than a crush podcast at gmail.com, and find us on Instagram. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Special thank you to Natalie Joachim, who composed our theme music. We're so appreciative, Natalie. Thank you. We love you.